I saw one YouTube clip of you talking about water. Yeah, yeah. The memory of water. In in fact, and uh, that links to Beggy. That links to Beggy. Said you are just yeah, we're just, just coming we're, from. We're a, just come from recording from a session. Mandeep Ahira mm. is the man who was interviewing me in my car. Yes. You know, I used to have this lovely seven-seater and that's the car that I f- used to fetch Peggy from the airport when I brought him back. Yeah. I used to drive him around in it, very comfortable with our kids and we'd go out into the countryside and stuff. And on that day, we were coming back from having recorded, I'd been recording with Peggy Mseleko in the studio and Mandeep was one of two film, uh, ca- camera p- uh, people who were documenting the whole thing. And we're driving back I'm driving him to his place and then I'm going on home to have my dinner. I was hungry. And what's playing on the on the on my sound system in my car is mm. Tunde Jegedi. Oh, our other brother. To the music that's playing in my car as I'm speaking about water and the influence of water in my music and Beggy's music yeah. is Tunde Jegedi's music. Yeah. And I'm playing Udu on that on that track mm. and he's playing Kora mm. and it's a beautiful track. I didn't consciously plan that when I pressed the play button on my sound system in the car that that's the music that would come that actually qualifies everything I'm talking about about water because the first time that Begim Selegu ever physically saw a Cora was in the back of Russell Herman's uh, VW Transporter. I remember Russell. You know? Russell. Oh, great guy. Great guitarist and great yeah. guy and he was sort of managing Beggy then. Yeah, yeah. So we, we were in the back of Russell's car. We are going to a church somewhere in Peckham where Lorna de Schmidt and other South Africans are there. It was a major event. I'm forgetting what it was, but something connected to the struggle mm. and the ANC and what have you. And and we are driving to the venue. Yeah. Tunde is sitting in the back of this vehicle yeah. with myself and Begim Sele. Mm. Begim sees the Tunde, the, the Cora for the first time physically at mm. close range. He asks Tunde to play for him. Mm. Tunde just plays, improvises. Mm. Show you the level of genius that Beggy was. Mm. Beggy nods his head, he, he closes his eyes, he sways his head, and then thanks, he puts his hands together and humbly thanks Tunde. When we get to the venue mm. where Beggy is going to be playing saxophone, tenor saxophone, with the mouthpiece that Alice Coltrane had given him, which belonged to John Coltrane, mm. which John Coltrane used on the playing, the recording of Love Supreme, mm. Beggy puts the sax together and we find there's a piano in the venue. Mm. Tunde, up until that point, had never wanted his Cora to be played with a piano. Mm. He was anti that because mm. he felt that those are instruments that crowd each other because they're highly melodic and yeah. they're flourishes, you know. Mm. The only person that he allowed to play piano was Beggy because when Beggy went to the piano, mm. Beggy played everything that Tunde was playing, had been playing in the, in the car oh. to show you what a genius he was. It all just came pouring and that became a collaboration, you know. We can only imagine an exciting fusion of musical forms and textures. There were some incredible rehearsals. Unfortunately, Beggy Insuleku and Tunde Jegede did not release any records together. Beggy 
was also exceptionally fluent on the saxophone. Receiving John Coltrane's mouthpiece from his widow was no mean testimony of this fact. His concerts at Queen Elizabeth Hall in London were a real joy to behold. One of the most remarkable and memorable facts about Beggy is that he could fill a concert hall and ensure the largest gathering of a mixed audience. I remember at his Queen Elizabeth Hall gig, you could feel the pulsation of the community as he brought us together under the spell of his genius. Because when Beggy played these halls, that were traditionally the domain of the European classical world, he infused them with his unapologetically African spirit of creative freedom. He chanted in his own language that embraced everyone present with the same collective cadence of spiritual love and the harmony of our oneness. Fascinating music and dancing in the aisles. Peggy's growing reputation as an extraordinary live jazz artist was complemented by the high quality of musicianship that informed his recordings. Joy is a great example.
beautiful composition, Joy, that features on Begim Selegu's Mercury-nominated debut album, Celebration, is a self-explanatory title. The playing on this track embodies the immeasurable sense of joy that he and his fellow musicians exuded during the creation of this project. Beggy was blessed by the generosity and superior musicianship of English flautist Eddie Parker and Americans drummer Marvin Smitty Smith and bassist Michael Bowie. Through Russell Herman's resourcefulness, these musicians went beyond the call of duty to make their skills available to the master composer and pianist. Each of them told me at various points that the recording of Celebration was among their most enjoyable experiences as artists. And so, you can feel that bouncy buoyancy and ebullience of the band on the track, Joy. You also spoke about some of the other work you did, promoting South African music in the UK, which of course radiated around the world. With Roger Short, a senior producer at the BBC, I used to do a series of programs on South African music over several years. And uh, these included Miriam Makeba, Hugh Masegela, you know, Matala Gunene, Usim Shongo, and several other people. These programs were me going back to my roots, if you like, going back yeah. home, and then showing off, if you like, in a positive yeah. sense of showing off, showing yeah. off to the world mm. our culture, the depth of our musical culture, yeah. you know. Yeah.
and so I'd present these programs. I'd go and interview all these people and go to, to where they are. Like I interviewed uh, Miriam Makeba in her home. When I interviewed Busim Shlongo, who had been in exile in the Netherlands at some point, and you know, she's no longer with us now, but was a phenomenal musician, a phenomenal artist, who was a seer, who was, who was like a healer, mm. you know, and came mm. from that background. I, 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 I recall that she was connected to the Shembe people, mm. who are a sect, a religious sect, who are very deeply spiritual, and like a syncretic religious group who link aspects of old Christianity mm. with the original Amahubo, Mm. Zulu poetic music, you know, mm, mm. spiritual music, yeah. and they're called Shambe. And mm. I, intru- I interviewed one of the leaders of these people when they were going on their annual pilgrimage to Ntlangagazi, oh, this okay. great mountain, you know. Yeah. You know. And I linked Musim Klong, for instance, this jazz musician, mm. to her roots with, with the spiritual Shambe people. And that was just one of the greatest programs, you know. The track playing is, of course, by your good friend and protégé, Don Laka. He calls this Tsela. You did some great work with a range of organizations in the UK and of course abroad. But your relationship with Beggy was very special, always very special. There were also challenges and some exceptional laws as well, weren't they? Tell me, why did Beggy end up in Sweden? Beggy had gone to Sweden to seek political asylum through the recommendation of our fellow South African exiled musician, Abdullah Ibrahim when we attended his concert in Munich. Abdullah had encouraged Beggy to go there because of the thriving jazz scene that featured South African bassist Johnny Tiani and drummer Gilbert Matthews. But life was not easy for Beggy in Sweden. He found it hard to support his wife, Nomvula and Laziluana, and their four children. Still without his own piano, he arranged with the management of Fushing Club in Stockholm for them to lock him in overnight so that he could practice on their Steinway grand until it was needed for regular club use the next day. 
he ended up becoming an organic school of jazz harmony to the endless local musicians who would join him to learn from the natural genius. In Sweden, Bergi suffered mental health problems. This was the first time that he was hospitalized for these and received chemical treatment that worsened his condition. Eventually, I encouraged him to join me in London, from where we could reignite his career. He would play the piano for three full days non-stop, leaving the instrument only to go to the toilet. When we were in London, after I arranged for him to join us from Stockholm with his wife Nomvula Lazilwan and their children, he would sit at our piano in the living room with a blanket over his shoulders and an incense stick wedged into the hinges of the piano. I remember our friend Russell Herman, who at that point was managing Bergi, arriving to collect him to drive him the long distance to the Bath International Festival, where the maestro was scheduled to perform a solo concert. I could not attend the concert because I was under contract to conduct a workshop with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. When Russell and Bergi returned from the concert, they did the usual thing of throwing a pebble at my kitchen window from the petrol station across the way to ask if I needed anything from the shop. Then they came round and I made tea and snacks. In the meantime, Bergi asked for my DAT, my digital, digital audio tape machine, and played back the recording of the gig. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. At the end, I remarked strongly that this should be released. That's how Meditation Suite came about. At Oval House, I got him a job to start teaching there as a way of getting him some earning. Yeah, yeah. And the way he taught, he taught classical musicians who were coming through my work with the London Sinfonietta and the London Philharmonic, mm. because I was the top player trainer, mm. then teaching classically trained musicians who know how to improvise, mm. you know. Mm. And so he would be paid, and all he would need to do was just to play in their midst. And when they asked him too many questions, he would actually get irritated. And we used to go to Ronnie Scott's every night. We were dirt poor, the both of us and just stand there in the hope that Ronnie Scott would, would, would eventually allow Let us to in. come in mm. and then Begim Seleg would meet all these great musicians yeah. who inspired him, who had started hearing about Begim Seleg. Mm. And one day Steve Coleman, the great Steve oh, Coleman, Steve. saxophonist, yeah, saxophonist yeah. was coming to London in a few days, heard that Begim was playing upstairs. Eventually we got allowed to go in, but Ronnie, Ronnie's people just gave Begim the upright piano upstairs, yeah. you know. And they couldn't wait to finish their gig. Smart Marvin Smitty Smith and, and, and all those great Steve Coleman, all these great, yeah. jazz. And they would come upstairs to sit with the cats from the motherland, as they called it. And eventually, yeah. he got a gig downstairs. Oh. And that was that changed that was everything. Sad. That changed everything. That changed everything. Yeah. Then he got his deal, and he bought his first piano, and he went home. Mm. I took him home, and he worked with us with the Ngoma Project. And then things got bad in South Africa. They didn't look after him. The main the, the, the music industry ignored him. Oh. It was the biggest insult for the greatest artist who had ever left our country, yeah. without a doubt. And then I brought him back to London mm. in 2003. I was making money then, and I booked a studio, like, with endless time yeah. for him just to recover. We booked Henry Wood Hall, where the orchestras uh, uh, practice in London, and we, I gave him access, got him access to a, to a, a full nine-foot Steinway Grand, which was his piano of choice. Oh, wow. And he played and played until he got his chops back. Yeah. And then when he was ready, I booked the studio. Mm. And we went in. I tell you, every day was tears rolling. Mm. And he played 
he, he, he played solo piano, which became an album that I produced called Beyond the Stars. And then, man, 2008, oh. he died, very sadly. You know. He got sick? He was Ill. diabetic, mm. but uh, he was also just frustrated with, with life. Life with was life, tough. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. He just left us. Yeah. He mm. was a unique kindred spirit. Yeah. It was just channeling. Totally. You know, kind of energy that we all try and hold bits here, bits there. But he had a direct communication. You know, and people like that, um, sometimes very difficult to care for, to even protect. Because whatever they feel affects the body. Exactly. Get affected in so many ways. In fact, you've hit the nail on the head. Towards the end of his life, that's mm. exactly what he was saying himself. Mm. Every day, you'd come to me and talk about how his body w was being accessed by negative energies, and yeah. you know he couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah. yeah, if you have that kind of direct communication, yeah. that is exactly, you know, what happens. Seventy percent of the planet is made up of water. Just as the human form consists of seventy percent water when we are at our healthiest. There are seven continents in the world. I love the number seven because it accentuates the lopsided symmetry of male and female energies. The meeting point between the settled and the unsettled, which indicates motion from stasis peaks from plateaus. Seven is a magical number in many cultures. Water features a lot in my musical and poetic imagery because we come from it and we return to it. Mm -hmm. 